trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Somewhere deep in your heart, I'm taking this uh, wild guess that uh, truth matters. And uh, that you're not tuned in because Brian is the source of truth. (laughs) I'm not. But I'm definitely a guy who's pretty serious about trying to find it. And that is not an easy job in today's world. Especially when you have so many forces lined up trying to prevent us from, uh, well, coming too close to the truth. Does that make sense? I hope so. I want to dive right in and start with, uh, you know, I'm continuing to watch very closely the Twitter files and uh, the release of some of the internal documents that show very, very clearly that uh, it's, it's, there, there was a lot that was done to manipulate public opinion, to hide certain viewpoints. And, you know, I, I know the left right now is is very strongly, well, you know, this is no big deal. I mean, come on, you know, it's not like... It's not like this is, isn't something that everybody doesn't do, but um, who was it? Glenn Greenwald actually had a terrific take on this. And, and he just said, you know, the, the key here is when you look at, at what happens with, uh, you know, the suppression of certain viewpoints, it all seems to go one direction. In other words, the political left, they weren't really, you know, having to, to struggle too much to, to get their viewpoints out, but anybody... With a conservative point of view, anyone with a contrarian point of view, yeah. For some reason, that uh, that was, was well, it was verboten. Nobody was supposed to, to see this. In fact, uh, here's how Glenn Greenwald puts it. He says, spend all year debating what shadow banning means if you want, because right now the, well, it was just the terms of service. You know, the, the left is saying it was the terms of service, nothing more. He says it's an imprecise term when you say shadow banning, but he says the, re- the reality is very clear. Twitter employees are almost 100% liberal, so they use their censorship power to silence conservatives, but never Democrats. That's the story. Now we have proof. So why does that matter? You know, I mean, again, I don't like to get into the whole partisan politics thing. This matters because it very well could have influenced not only an election, or two, but it uh, very well could have influenced the the free flow of information that would have been extremely helpful during the COVID pandemic, and particularly in uh, in pushing back and and rebutting some of the the different well the just the descending point the some descending points of view getting out there against some of the lockdown and other harmful things that were done that uh, that really took our freedoms shut people's lives down, put people in criminal jeopardy. I like how Hannah Cox put it. She says, it's funny how the left wants amnesty for their idiotic COVID policies, and the claim is they didn't have all the information we have now. But she says, that's funny, because plenty of us did have the right information all along. You just censored it and tried to cancel people for sharing it. And this is, now we have the receipts. Now that we're seeing some of these internal documents from Twitter, it's like, holy cow, that's exactly what they did. We're going to dive into this in some detail, and I, I hope it doesn't sound too much like, wow, you're just really griping about this, but do you understand the harm that was done 
and the deception and and the I I would hope this rises to criminal mendacity in terms of you know what was done. It's not just a matter of well we had a difference of agreement, but you know it's a private platform they could do whatever they want. This was done at the behest of and with the cooperation of a number of government officials as well as political operatives. And given that the direction has been to consolidate power, consolidate control, to demonize and tar and feather and paint, you know, half the country as domestic terrorists, fascists, seething to impose some authoritarian, you know, regime. Sorry, folks, you know, the the mask is coming off. There is a very naked totalitarianism lurking just beneath it. I don't find it pleasant to see these kind of things. I don't don't find it pleasant to talk about these kind of things. But it's time it's time to open our eyes and see the reality of what's in front of us and realize we've got a very serious problem. Let's take a moment here to talk about how the Twitter files confirm censorship of the Great Barrington Declaration. This is from the American Institute for Economic Research, the work of Phil Magnus as well as David Waugh, who write that users have suspected Twitter of engaging in shadow banning and suppressing the visibility of user accounts for years even though the social media giant has adamantly denied the practice. By the way, there are lots of great links in this article that back up everything they're saying. So on December 8th, using information provided by Twitter under direction from new chief executive Elon Musk, journalist Barry Weiss released a Twitter thread confirming these suspicions. Twitter secretly suppressed accounts, operated a search blacklist, and blocked certain content from trending. Weiss's thread confirms this. In response, Musk tweeted that Twitter plans to release software that will provide users with more clarity regarding shadow banning. Now, victims of the practice included Dr. J. Bhattacharya, Stanford professor of medicine and co-author of the Great Barrington Declaration. Weiss's thread and the Twitter files confirm what we've long suspected. Seeking to prop up Anthony Fauci and the lockdown policies he's promoted in response to the COVID-19 pandemic. Twitter and other big tech companies intentionally blacklisted, censored, suppressed, and targeted the Great Barrington Declaration and its signers. Within Twitter, the Strategic Response Team, Global Escalation Team, or SRTGET, worked on hundreds of cases daily, actively filtering the visibility of select accounts. So for high-profile accounts, the Site Integrity Policy or Policy Escalation Support Team, SIPPES, would secretly make censorship decisions. The SIPPES team comprised high-profile executives like the head of Legal, Policy, and Trust, Vijaya Gadi, Global Head of Security and Trust, or Global Head of Trust and Safety, Yoel Roth, and former CEOs Jack Dorsey and Parag Agrawal. And by the way, Weiss confirms all of this with screenshots. In addition to Weiss, Twitter's new leadership granted journalist Matt Taibbi access to its files. Below, they list how Taibbi illustrates how Twitter deleted tweets at the behest of the Biden presidential campaign. I mean, you can see this with your own eyes. This is not, you know, just speculation. It might have looked like this. Here's what it actually looked like. Now, the article goes on to say, still unfolding in this investigation is the role of government officials in pressuring Twitter to engage in censorship over the COVID-19 pandemic. As revealed by a lawsuit earlier this year, internal company Slack messages show that uh, Andy Slavitt, a former official on Joe Biden's pandemic task force, met with Twitter officials and pressured them to restrict the account of COVID gadfly Alex Berenson. 
Slavitt also delivered an ominous warning to executives at Facebook that the company would find itself in the White House's crosshairs if it did not step up its efforts to restrict what the task force deemed to be COVID misinformation. So we now have conclusive evidence that public officials pressure private companies to do the dirty work of censorship. Okay, don't be tempted to shrug that off and just, well, you know, that's just how it's done. Because that's, that's a muzzle that they're fitting you for. Do you not understand that? That filthy hand is being clapped over your mouth as well as the people who you may not disagree with. All right, back to the article. We have yet to discover and may never know how far the political involvement in social media censorship went and which officials were given the power to silence. An ongoing lawsuit by the attorneys general of Missouri and Louisiana is currently seeking to get to the bottom of those questions. Just two weeks ago, they obtained a court-ordered deposition from Anthony Fauci in which they grilled him over similar suppressive tactics. Fauci proved evasive, invoking the I don't recall line 174 times but was caught in a lie about his direct personal involvement in the National Institute of Health's efforts to smear and discredit the Great Barrington Declaration's authors as fringe epidemiologists. GBD co-author Jay Bhattacharya was slapped with a secret blacklist or secret trends blacklist tag by Twitter officials at some point after his account was created in September 2021. Weiss's thread confirms this. The blacklist tag effectively suppressed Bhattacharya's tweets by preventing them from going viral or being picked up by Twitter's trends algorithm. So by all appearances, one or more persons on the company's SIP pest team made the decision to suppress scientifically grounded dissent against lockdowns. Now, there is much more to this story. I would invite you to discover it for yourself. I've got a link in my show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com, and I would encourage you, take a look and just see. I'm, I'm not saying you have to believe this. You have to nod your head in agreement every time I tell you this. But it sure seems like there's more than enough evidence to, to show that there was very serious collusion between government officials and social media executives to try to silence people, to try to prevent too much truth coming out, and that means they were deliberately trying to keep you and me in the dark. Does that not bother you just a little bit? Does that not make you ask, why would they want to do that? What Was it for my own good? Should I just shut up and do whatever I'm told? It's time to start asking some very serious questions and maybe seeking some accountability. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Once again, thanks for joining us here on The Brian Hyde Show. I would encourage you to go to my website where you can not only access my show notes, you can actually subscribe and I'll send them right to your email inbox, but you can also learn a little bit about my wonderful sponsors. They include garagedoorproservices.com, serving St. George, Cedar City, Mesquite, Colorado City, beautiful corner of color country and these are the guys you go to for installation service and repair of garage doors if you'd like to call them you can pick up the phone and call 435-525-2773 again that's garage door pro services i've i'm very happy to have them as a sponsor of the show i recommend them wholeheartedly to you check out the link provided in my show notes
So I'm going to keep beating the drum here for at least another segment on, uh, you know, what we are learning because of the Twitter files. I know it sounds dramatic, but, you know, the stakes in the war on information are as high as the stakes in any shooting war. It's about control. And living in the information age, it should become clear at some point that control of information equals control of people. Even if you don't have a gun pointed at your head, you have people deigning to to seize control over how you see the world, what you're allowed to see, what you're allowed to say, what you're allowed to think. That should be troubling. That should be extremely troubling because I'm, I'm not sure that, well, I am sure actually, their purposes are not benevolent. It's not like, well, you know, we're just, you know, a little more enlightened and we're just trying to keep everybody in line, you know, make sure that the world's a happy, pleasant place. No, I think there's something far more uh, malevolent at work here. And the deep state mass brainwashing that's been taking place just, it looks more criminal by the day. Got a great article here from uh, Martin Geddes. This is from his uh, newsletter. Twitter exposes deep state mass brainwashing. And in particular, I really liked the bullet points that he lists out here. He says, the Twitter file scandal continues to unfold day by day, confirming beyond any doubt what many of us has been saying for years. There is a deep state alliance of government agencies, quasi-private organizations, media and intelligence professionals, professionals rather, engaged in mass censorship to cover up organized crime, notably crimes against children and treason. So these are the key facts to date. Twitter executives lied under oath to Congress about their policies and behavior. This is a disturbing one. A blind eye was turned to child pornography and human trafficking on the platform, making staff complicit in such crimes. The policing tools that were meant for legitimate ends were instead used to censor individual free speech and give a false impression via trends of collective sentiment. There were active attempts to influence the 2020 election, including narrative control, suppression of candidates, removal of open debate, and the deliberate targeting of the elected president, for deplatforming. There was direct collusion and censorship with the FBI, DNI, DOJ, bringing into question whether Twitter is meaningfully, meaningfully a private ent- entity, rather, or just a deep state front and proxy. There was participation in creating a false narrative around the January 6th protests and hiding that the president requested people to peacefully disperse. The DNC and Democrat politicians, by the way, that last one, I know Adam Schiff has been making some news. Well, the January 6th committee has completed its findings and there will be criminal repercussions. I think they're getting ready to file some criminal charges against Trump. Just keep in mind, these are the same people who supported this kind of censorship. Why would they do that? Anyway, back to the list of bullet points of things that we know, thanks to the Twitter files coming out. The DNC and Democrat politicians were lobbying to silence their critics and opposing candidates, notably Katie Hobbs in Arizona. Also, there are large numbers of past and current employees with direct or past ties to government agencies with unclear, at best, loyalty. The head of site integrity, Yoel Roth, has a long track record of promoting underage sexuality and frequently references pedophile themes. Now, this is not just a smear against this guy. There are the receipts. There are tweets. Well, how, how young should the age of consent be before a child can consent to have sex? This is the kind of stuff he was focused on. 
The Deputy General Counsel, James Baker, attempted to suppress public knowledge of FBI involvement while being a former FBI agent. Direct messages were not private, as claimed. The placement of John Podesta's niece onto the Trust and Safety Council eliminates even a pretense to political impartiality. A portal to the CDC allowed unlawful removal of First Amendment speech rights of those who questioned the totalitarian COVID public health narrative and big pharma interests. The attempt to unseat an existing president is treason. We're watching a failed coup in progress. And finally, Martin Getty says the mass media fails to report on treason, perjury, sedition at Twitter, making them complicit in the coup effort. Now, he's taken a pretty harsh view, but I don't think factually he's wrong on any of the things he's asserting here. And it's, you know, that sounds like, well, it's so incendiary to point these kind of things out. Where do you think this is headed? I'm asking that sincerely. Where do you think it's going? It's not just, you know, a matter of, well, we had differences of opinion and, you know, they just want to go their way and we want to go ours. Nope. Those differences of opinion mean that there were people very actively working to suppress voices that would would challenge some of the, the just unconscionable policies that are being implemented. I mean, look, where do we begin? The environmental religion, the climate change religion, how, how far have we come toward destroying ourselves economically and destroying people's quality of life? We have an artificially induced energy crisis. When I say artificially induced, it's not because, well, we just, we've run out of oil. There's no coal. There's nowhere to go. We don't know where to find, you know, any fuels. It's a deliberate pulling the plug on existing reliable fuel sources and chasing this dream of, well, we'll have green energy and everything will run on wind power and solar power and and we'll just make everybody drive electric cars. And I'm telling you, the closer I look at it, the more it looks like this is just trying to shoehorn people into a one-size-fits-all solution that the world is not even close to ready for. And, of course, the, the elite... In their Learjets, you know, are still going to be flying off to Davos and hobnobbing and deciding what else do we do with the rest of these people? You know, what, what else do we can we tell them to do? They still have the gas-powered cars. They still have the gas-guzzling, you know, Suburbans and whatever limousines are ferrying them around. But the rest of us are expected to basically lower our standard of living. We need to regress back to where we're washing our clothes on a rock down by the river. Why? Because that's what's good for the planet. No, it's not. I know we joke around about, well, you'll eat bugs and you'll like it. You'll own nothing and you'll be happy. And I'm sorry. But uh, no, I will resist all of those things. And it's not because I'm a selfish, earth-destroying, you know, white, cisgendered male who, you know, just can't be told what to do. These are things that are actually very damaging to everybody, not just me. It's not the world that I want to leave for my kids. It's not the world I want to leave for my grandkids. So, uh, no, I will not be bending the knee and going along quietly to, to uh, you know, assuage those who think that they know what's best. In fact, uh, if I could just be very blunt and honest, every waking moment of every single day, I spend planning for and, and, and strategizing not only how to resist them, but planning for their route. Because I'm convinced they are going to come down at some point. And I'll try hard not to feel too much satisfaction 
as they have their inevitable, uh, you know, date with justice. My only hope is that they don't take down too many of us with them on their way to, you know, their richly deserved uh, just rewards. Sorry, that does sound a bit vindictive, but uh, I think the stakes are such that uh, it's it's time to speak with some clarity here. And if that's a little bit too plain, sorry. But I'm not going to sugarcoat it just for the sake of, well, you know, I guess we could play one more game of patty cake with them. Nope. They need to be rejected and decisively separated from power. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Quick uh, message here about lifesavingfood.com. I always have thought that food storage was a good idea. I especially thought this about the time that my first child was born. And that weight of responsibility, holy cow, I felt that settle on my shoulders. That realization, you are responsible for this young life and for providing for your family. And, you know, that's when I started to get very serious about, okay, all right, that I need to be paying attention and doing whatever I can to to make sure that we are, in as many ways as possible, self-sufficient. That can take a lot of different, uh, you know, different forms. But the ability to feed yourself... In, in times of trouble, that's one of the big ones. Why? Well, because without food, it kind of becomes a moot point, right? So check out my sponsor, lifesavingfood.com. There's a link in the show notes. Take you right to their website. I bet you find something there that could bring you peace of mind. All right, let's let's uh, let's talk a little bit more about uh, culturally what's going on here. Uh, we're seeing a lot more court cases that stem from issues like gay wedding cake and woke restaurants. James Corbett has a marvelous take on this. This is from the Corbett Report. And I want to share, you know, some of his thoughts on this. I think it's it this this is really good analysis. He says, remember the United States Supreme Court's momentous decision on Masterpiece Cake Shop uh, versus Colorado Civil Rights Commission? Eh, probably not, huh? But he says, what if I say gay wedding cake case? Ah, now it starts to ring a bell. And he says, it probably will ring a bell for American libertarians in the crowd as the issue of whether bakers should be forced to bake imaginatively decorated wedding cakes became an important wedge issue in the Libertarian Party's 2016 presidential forum. Yes, seriously. He says, also, if you remember my 2018 interview with Patrick McFarlane about the case, you might also remember the U.S. Supreme Court's ruling was far from decisive. In fact, it punted on the core issue, whether or not a Christian baker can be compelled to bake a cake against his deeply held religious belief. As we predicted in that conversation, the Masterpiece case may be over, but this issue would rear its head in the courts again. Well, guess what? It's 2022 and gay wedding cakes are so last decade, Grandpa. Now it's all about gay website design and woke restaurants refusing service to Christian customers. So are you ready to get to the heart of the matter? Okay, he says, I thought so. Let's go. So the background, he says, for those who don't know the saga of the gay wedding cake, it started when Charlie Craig and David Mullins decided to get married in 2012. Given that gay marriage was still not recognized in their home state of Colorado at the time, they planned to get married in Massachusetts and then return to Colorado for their wedding reception. 
Craig and Mullins visited Masterpiece Cake Shop in Lakewood, Colorado in July 2012 to purchase a cake for their reception. That's when the owner, Jack Phillips, informed them that he would not bake a cake for a gay wedding due to his Christian beliefs, although he assured them he would sell them anything else in the store. So Craig and Mullins filed a complaint with the Colorado Civil Rights Commission, which ruled against Masterpiece holding the bakery would not only have to start baking gay wedding cakes, but it would also have to change its policies, provide comprehensive staff training regarding public accommodations, discrimination, and provide quarterly reports documenting their compliance with the order. And nothing heavy-handed about that. The commission's decision was upheld by the state's appeal, uh, state appeals court, and the case was eventually appealed all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court. And as you'll remember, the Supreme Court heard the case in 2018 and ruled for Masterpiece. Now, although Phillips won the case, the ruling was no great win for freedom of religion or free speech or against government encroachment on business or private property. Instead, the Supreme Court issued an extremely narrow decision on the basis that the Civil Rights Commission's consideration of the case was neither tolerant nor respectful of Phillips' religious beliefs and thus invalid. In other words, the Supreme Court punted. James Corbett points out, what if the commission had been tolerant and respectful of Phillips' beliefs, but still ordered him to bake the cake? Did they have that right? He says the Supreme Court decision does raise the specter of the significant First Amendment issues involved in forcing someone to use their skills to make an expressive statement that implicates his deep and sincere religious beliefs. But it did not adjudicate those issues. In other words, the Supreme's avoidance of the core issues underlying the Masterpiece case left the door wide open for future court battles on the subject. And in 2022, that's exactly what's happening. Now, from here, he goes into a couple more stories that have appeared on the news radar recently, bringing the issue of when business can refuse service back into the public spotlight. So in the first story, the Family Foundation, a nonprofit, nonpartisan, faith-based organization in Virginia that advocates for policies based on biblical principles that enable families to flourish at the state and local level, had a private room booked at Metzger Bar and Butchery on November 30th for a gathering of friends and supporters of the foundation. Now, the meeting was booked two weeks in advance, or weeks in advance, rather, but the restaurant canceled the booking just hours before the event was to take place because, according to a blog on the Foundation's, or a post on the Foundation's blog, an employee looked up our organization and their wait staff refused to serve us. The restaurant confirmed the story in an Instagram post explaining, recently we refused service to a group of donors to a political organization that seeks to deprive women and LGBTQ plus persons of their basic human rights in Virginia. We have always refused service to anyone for making our staff uncomfortable or unsafe, and this was the driving force behind our decision. Many of our staff are women and or members of the LGBTQ plus community. Now, rather than taking the issue to court, the Family Foundation instead offered dialogue with the restaurant over the issue. Todd Gathji says we would welcome an opportunity to have a discussion with them, with meeting, him, meeting with them in private where we can have a heart-to-heart -heart about some of the issues. I think that's a more adult way to handle this, but... Meanwhile, in the second story, the U.S. Supreme Court heard oral arguments last week in the case of Lori Smith, who's a website designer from Colorado, who in 2016 decided to start offering wedding announcement websites to her clientele. Now, she wanted to limit her wedding announcement design services to opposite-sex marriages. So in an effort to avoid becoming the next Jack Phillips, she preemptively sued Colorado Civil Rights Commission to prevent them from applying the state's anti-discrimination laws to her proposed business. 
and the oral arguments quickly devolved into an exercise in speculation and even unhinged flights of fancy. Just as the Master Case cake case became a case of convoluted hypotheticals, must a Jew bake a Nazi cake? Inquiring minds want to know. The gay wedding site uh, website design case has become a case about everything except gay wedding website design. Can a website designer refuse to make interracial wedding websites? Can a shopping mall photography business that produces photos of children in classic Santa scenes insist that it only photograph white children? Can a Jewish person demand a Jewish photographer take a photograph for his AshleyMadison.com profile? Seriously, he's Jim, James Corbett says, <clears throat> check the links. I'm not making up this psychedelic smorgasbord of deranged imaginary situations. The Supreme Court justices presiding over the case are. And he says, perhaps the, the zany hypotheticals are actually gesturing toward the bigger question here. After all, this isn't really about cakes or websites or dinner, par dinner parties at a restaurant, is it? This is about the fundamental question of when and how the government can step in and tell businesses who they must serve and are, under what conditions they must serve them. Now, this is, of course, an e easily comprehensible, principled, internally consistent solution to the supposedly thorny legal questions raised by these various cases. Business owners can serve anyone they want and refuse service to anyone they want. There, problem solved. As we all know, however, no one except the fringiest of the fringe wingnuts who actually believe in voluntarism would even contemplate this solution. People deciding for themselves what to do with their own property? Statists of all stripes exclaim in abject horror. How absurd. You must be a racist, sexist, misogynistic, homophobic bigot. Or in the case of the Family Foundation supporters, you must be an anti-Christian bigot. James Corbett says, oh. Anyway, I know that 99% of the population, and even the vast majority of my own audience, believes that governments and courts should step in to mandate who can and who cannot be refused service by any given business. But he says, here's why they're wrong. Now, a normie might argue that if we were to take this dangerous freedom idea to its logical conclusion, we would have to repeal all the wonderful anti-discrimination laws on the, book, on the books going all the way back to the Civil Rights Act. And you wouldn't want to be against the Civil Rights Act, would you, bigot? Rachel Maddow's fake astonishment intensifies. Well, he says, firstly, if you live in a community where the only thing keeping shopkeepers from posting no blacks, no blacks signs on their front door is the Civil Rights Act, then I think the problem lies at a deeper level than the legislative realm, doesn't it? And if you wanted to solve that problem in a meaningful way, it would probably involve more than creating a new piece of legislation, wouldn't it? He asked, what does that magical piece of legislative paper actually do? Are we supposed to believe politicians issuing another law will magically transform bigots into loving people? Or that politicians issuing another law will make discrimination actually disappear? Of course it won't. Which is exactly why the legislation's defenders fear that society will instantly resegregate as soon as those laws are rescinded. Now, he goes into some more detail here, but unfortunately, i got to tap the brakes for a moment because I'm up against my own commercial break. I've got this link to James Corbett's amazing article of, wait, of gay wedding cakes and woke restaurants. He really has nailed it, though. It really, this comes down to people wanting to force each other to do what they want the other person to do. I mean, this is, this is not good. How do you convince people not to engage in that kind of behavior? This is The Brian Hyde Show.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. I just want to give you a couple more excerpts here from James Corbett's article. He's, he asks a few questions here that, uh, that I think are worth contemplating. First of all, why do normies believe the government will only legislate in line with their beliefs? The same power that they're willing to grant governments to force Christians to bake gay wedding cakes is the same power government will use to ban bank bakers from baking gay wedding cakes. After all, aren't these bake-the-cake authoritarians the very same people who've been warning us for the last five years that Orange Man Bad and his MAGA cult are going to institute concentration camps for transgenders and implement a Christian theocracy? So his question here is very well considered. Shouldn't they be arguing against giving government the power to institute these types of laws? James Corbett says, rhetorical questions aside, I think we know what the real answer is here. Power. A large swath of the public salivates at the idea of using the mighty stick of government to beat their opponents into submission. And not just to vanquish those opponents, but to humiliate them by forcing them to act in ways that violate their own beliefs. Imagine being like that. Imagine getting off on the idea of forcing someone you hate to serve you against their will. But he says it's not just the normies who exhibit this lust for power or believe the lie that power of this sort is great as long as it's used in the right way by the right people. Even conspiracy realists fall prey to this line of thinking. After all, it might be argued that if business owners were allowed the horrible freedom to decide what to do with their own property, then they might use that power to discriminate against conspiracy theorists or anti-vaxxers or anyone they choose. And poof, those people will be starved out of existence. But he says this, too, is a fallacy. The threat to our liberty comes not from individual business owners being able to decide who they do or don't serve. The threat comes from government having the ability to set those criteria in the first place. As long as people are allowed the freedom to decide who they transact with and in what way, those of us who value our freedom will be able to support each other as we work toward building our intentional communities. No, the algorithmic ghetto will not come about because individual business owners are choosing who to serve, but because we have ceded the power to make that choice to judges and politicians. And as every conspiracy realist knows, those judges and politicians will inevitably be the young global leaders acting in service of the Great Reset Agenda. The same power that you grant government to ban QR codes and vaccine passports is the very same power that corrupt legislators will use to implement those QR codes and vaccine passports somewhere down the line. So he says, as I said, the principle is as simple as it is powerful. Let people serve who they want. This is not rocket science. If we adhere to the simple principle that we take away the ring of power from our erstwhile opponents... Never again will a Christian baker have to bake a gay wedding cake or a Jewish baker have to bake a Nazi cake or a flying purple monkey from the planet Zepton have to eat radishes on Tuesday in contravention of the devout religious beliefs of the Zeptonians. I do like that last line, by the way. But most people can't bear the thought of casting the ring of power into the fires of Mount Doom. After all, I could use that power to defeat my political opponents. So we go round and round in this carnival ride of laws and court rulings, constantly over at each other's throats over the proper way to force other people to do what they don't want to do. And once again, we arrive at the conclusion that freedom is the answer, whatever the question. But the problem is convincing the general public of that, let alone the Supreme Court. Dang, that is... 
That's some straight up common sense right there from James Corbett. All right, two other quick articles I want to touch on very quickly. Uh, one of the biggest selling points of so-called democracy is that it lets the inmates feel like they're running the asylum. Got a great article from the Z-Man on the Grand Delusion. Well worth your time. Also, watching the deliberate destruction of our nation and ideals, that's not something that most of us are willing to just sit back and take. But realistically, what can we do about it? Got a great article here from Chris Williams. This was published on AmericanThinker.com. Ten Ways to Strike Back. And Chris Williams says, look, I'm not an editor or a journalist. I'm not an influencer. I don't sit in a boardroom or govern my company's policies. I abide by them. Not exactly a position of fortitude, but Chris says, like many of you, I don't have the luxury of not having a job. I have a mortgage to pay and a son to put through college. Chris says, for most of my life, I've been apolitical. I've only voted in a handful of elections. My votes have never been one-party centric. Perhaps I've just never had the inclination to support a political entity that would invariably let me down. Perhaps I just thought that silence would serve me better than plain-spoken conversation. But inaction has consequences too. And Chris says, In recent years I've seen many of my friends and colleagues readily embrace the illusion of safety over personal self-determination. He says, I'm reminded of... uh, Benjamin Franklin's warning that adversaries of liberty would need to begin by subduing the freedom, or the freeness, rather, of speech. So what can we do now? We've relinquished these, uh, these roles to Yahoo and Google and Facebook and TikTok and Instagram. We've given academia the green light to raise our children. We've taught our children not to question authority. We've been lazy, and now we're disappointed in how the cake has turned out. What can we do? What can someone like you or I do? Someone with no audience, no political capital, what can we really accomplish when nearly every medium of public discourse and method of communication is driven by a coastal elitist narrative? Now, the truth of the matter is not much. But not much isn't nothing either. And maybe there are some of us commoners doing something more than nothing. So maybe we can accomplish something a little bit substantive. So let's focus our attention on a few resolutions that promote vibrant communities and limited government. Now, these aren't schematic changes. They're resolutions mainstream Americans can implement without any real-time commitment, monetary cost, or risk of reprisal. Check out this list. Number one, vote with your wallet. You may vote at the ballot box once or twice a year, but you spend every day with your wallet. And as Americans, we are constant consumers. We spend a lot and we spend often. And every day we funnel our hard-earned salaries to corporations like PayPal, Apple, Ben & Jerry's, Starbucks, Target, Nike. It's a sad irony, but we're, a finan- we're a financing the who's who of Woke Incorporated. So he says, in 2023, let's commit to changing our spending habits. The good news is most of us spend the majority of our money within the same circles of retailers and restaurants. Switching over a handful of products is easier than you think. And you can feel good about money you were spending anyway. Number two, vote with your clicks. In other words, never Google anything again. There are some fantastic search engines out there not named Google or Yahoo. Download one of them and uh, make it your default browser. The only thing you're going to miss are the trackers and advertisers, Big Brother Google, and the liberal content you're being force-fed daily. Number three, teach your kids the Bill of Rights. If you haven't noticed, kids tend to be idealists. What's more ideal than ensuring that the rights and liberties of individual citizens are protected from expansive government? Post a copy on your kid's wall, understanding it will provide your children with a lifelong lens to see the 
abuses of power in plain sight. Number four, vote twice. Ever found it frustrating that our elected representatives are put in office by a constituency of uninformed and unmotivated voters? Well, here's a silver lining. No, you can't literally vote twice, but you can make your ballot count more. Judges don't have a capital D or R near their names. Do your homework and vote down ballot. Since you just taught your kids the Bill of Rights, now's your opportunity to support judges who will actually uphold it. Number five, know your charities. You don't have to support BLM, Planned Parenthood, or the Southern Southern Poverty Law Center to have your well-intentioned dollars funding left-of-field ideologies. Number six, widen your circle of influence. Here are a few ideas. Write an article. Volunteer. Run for your local school board. Join a PAC, as in Political Action Committee. Teach a class online. This might take a more coordinated effort, but there's no shortage of options. Number seven, consider the switch from network TV to podcasts. It'll save you time and money, give you the flexibility to listen on your watch, and empower you to choose the content of your programs. Number eight, raise skeptics, not conformists. Children have a natural inclination to question everything. Let them. They're going to have to unpack a lot of BS in their lives from all sorts of avenues and authority figures. Let's not raise sheep just because they're more agreeable. Number nine, buy and hold. I'm not suggesting that you should revamp your brokerage account, but why not make money supporting the companies you love? Consider the values of the company as one of the criteria in your selection. And number 10, aspiration trumps contention. Anger and fear are short-term wins. Represent the party of aspiration. It should come natural to us. You can start with life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Now, the best part about this is that this, this has a multiplier effect. These are things you can do and pay it forward, and it will inspire other people around you to do likewise. So let's not have our values cooked up in the back rooms of some multinational conglomerates. They've led us astray. They've caused us to turn our backs onto the city on the hill. Let's let the common sense and common decency of everyday Americans pave the way back. But most importantly, isn't it cool? All of those suggestions are something you can do right now, today, where you're standing. And maybe you have a little more influence than you thought. This is The Brian Hyde Show.